this week on Dig Me Out. Yeah, I didn't really think about the Bon Jovi, but now that you say it, I can't. Now I can't get it out of my head that it sounds like Bon Jovi <laughs> in the chorus. Tim and Jay review Aluminum by God's Child. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Minichi, and joining me for our final review of the 2015 season, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, Tim, I lost you there for a second. You uh, thought maybe you fell off your stool or lost me? Yeah, you said three, two, and then you disappeared for like three seconds. Oh, I was I was doing my inhale exhale. Uh, <laughs> preparation centering my chi and, i see yes so jay it's episode 258 of uh season five or wrapping up last review and you picked it hell yeah yeah you get to send us out on uh on our way to our year-end review show which will uh wrap up the year you picked an album jay by a band which uh, does not like proper punctuation. They're called God's Child. Yeah. And you'd think God's would have a, a, an apostrophe in there, but there isn't. No. So it's God's with an odd spelling and child. They're not, they not owned by God. No. So I guess you could surmise that they're not a Christian rock band <laughs> uh, because they took out the apostrophe. Right. See, it was a smart choice. Well, it definitely well, um, was it. It caused some. I mean, there were people that were questioning it on Facebook. Where's the apostrophe? We don't know. We don't know what happened to that apostrophe. So, Jay, why'd you pick this record? This is one of the bands when I think we first talked about doing this show that popped in my head for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, just being uh, pretty pretty obscure. I'd seen them live. I've talked about the show a couple times, uh, that Buzzard Fest show with Moist and Green Day headlined and never played, which was essentially, you know, the whatever year that would have been, 94. Mm-hmm. It was the parade of recently signed bands. So it was, you know, a full day of bands I had never seen before. And they were one of them. And they were kind of interesting. I got the record um, that uh, the station was playing at the time. Um, some of it was okay, I remember, and some of it was meh. And then, uh, I think recently, within the last five years or so, for whatever reason, I came across them again and saw that they had put out another record that I wasn't even aware of. And listened to that one and thought it was an interesting evolution of the band and worthy of our conversation. Now, which album are you talking about? Aluminum. Okay, so that's the one we're reviewing. It came out in 1996, and it's their sophomore album. Yep. I was not familiar at all with this band or this uh, album, so let's do a brief history of the band. History of the band. So God's Child formed in New York City, New York in 1991 by a couple of friends, Chris Seafried. And Gary DeRosa, uh, Chris was lead vocals and guitar, Gary keyboards and backing vocals. Now, these guys had worked together quite a bit in different bands, gotten signed, been managed, uh, were over in the UK for a while, made their way back to New York, 
we're doing demos here and there for various people and everybody the debut record came out in 1994 and it was released under the name god's child i don't even think that that was the the name when they started working on the demos for this i think they had gone through a couple different names Mm. uh, before that and then as mentioned earlier aluminum their sophomore album came out in 1996 uh they then uh they changed their name and rejiggered the lineup uh, which the band has had a bunch of different lineups. That's why I'm only mentioning Chris and Gary, because they're the primary songwriters and uh, singers in the band. Lots of different drummers and bass players. Uh, they got, a, got involved with Adam Duritz of the County Crows and his like imprint from whatever major label that they were on at the time. And they released uh, an album in 1999 under the name Joe 90 called Dream This. And then they released uh, a follow-up called A Raccoon's Lunch in 2000. And in the same year, they did the soundtrack for a movie called Boys and Girls. And then that's the last info I have on uh, Gary and Chris. So interesting turn of events for them to change the name and go work with Adam Duritz, who I believe actually sang on that record. And then it was produced by Tony Visconti. So... I'm sure somebody has the Joe 90 records out there. Probably wants to talk about them. Feel free to comment on them in the in the comments for this episode. We did get some feedback. W- well, one person. Uh, Matt Wardlaw on Twitter said, good jams. <laughs> so, with a Z? Yeah, not with a Z, though. No, he missed that opportunity. Uh, one interesting note, the producer on this album was Tim Palmer, who people might recognize as a uh, someone who worked on... Uh, albums by Pearl Jam and Sponge and the Mission UK. So a little bit of a, you know, pedigree to his resume. Jay, let's talk about aluminum, aluminium, as they say across the pond. Mm-hmm. And uh, their sophomore album from God's Child. Jay, since you were the one who suggested this record means I get to go first. I'm going to tell you one thing I liked about this record. Mm-hmm. I like the jams, Jay, like Matt Wardlaw. I'm, on, <laughs> I'm down with the jams. No, uh, I appreciated uh, there were a couple songs in this record that caught my ear. And uh, the one I want to bring to your attention is actually the last song in the record, which is called Serve Yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a very different sounding song than a lot of the record.
starts out with some weird noises and, and distortions and stuff, and then it goes into what sounds like it's going to be sort of like a mellower ballad, and then it gets weird, and there's this crazy parts, and then there's this weird, like, all over the place, like, piano, like you'd hear in, like, A Day in the Life, and um, you hear the, you know, Beatles influence in that song, and, and the more experimental side, and uh, that comes across in parts of the record, and I definitely appreciated it most on that track. Uh, there are a couple other uh, places where it pops up, but that's the track where it was the most uh, prevalent that this is a band that had some really interesting chops when it came to uh, songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other stuff leans towards the more straightforward pop songwriting, but uh, that was the one that stood out for me, and I liked their uh, their twists and turns on that particular song. Uh, in revisiting, Jay, what was uh, one thing that you liked? Well, this is a band that um, I remember them being live. Um, interesting in that there are moments where they could sound like Bon Jovi <laughs> and then other moments where they sound like like beat poet, hipster, like 60s lounge-ish, and then they would get really jammy mm-hmm. uh, for long sections, at least live, which at the end of it just was kind of a at least you know a little confusing but if nothing else a unique combination of elements i was when i got when i when i got that record you know there was within that first record there are some moments where the pop stuff kind of comes through and you get that nice balance of you know it's a pop kind of format but there's an interesting instrumentation but i would say you know memory series over half of the record is kind of meandering and almost jammy in a in a in a way that's you know just kind of unfocused. Mm-hmm. So when I got this record, I was I was pleasantly surprised that it seemed more focused to me. Um, it brought together some of the elements of records like that self-titled cult record that we reviewed several seasons ago. Um, in that it had kind of retroy, you know, band sounds in terms of bass and drum sounds. Really interesting use of keyboards you know, all over the map in terms of the type of tones that are used in the keyboards and how it's used. Um, I think in ways in the 90s that, um, you know, keyboard kind of became, by the 80s, everybody was burned out in the synth. So there was sort of this, what does the instrument become in the 90s? Right. Um, so it was kind of refreshing here to, to hear somebody really competent on the instrument and also not completely like single dimensional. Like he was, he's not just playing Hammond organ and he's not just playing Moog and he's not just playing you know, strings, he's, or piano, he's kind of mixing it up and doing a bunch of interesting things. So I, I like the, I like a lot of the songwriting here. Um, and I like more than anything is probably just the presentation. I mean, I guess the cool jams in, in a way I would interpret that for myself to be, uh, it's just got a good, I like the feel. I like the performances. I like how they play together. Um, there's some moments here where, whether they're a real band or not a real band, like the the players on the record kind of come together really well. And I like how the uh, consistently on the record, the um, guitar as well kind of plays a unique role. It's not like it's not all about the guitar across the whole record. You know, it's kind of equal weight, drums, vocal, piano or keys, bass, a lot of bass stuff and then guitar, you know. It's there and it has some distinctive tones, but it's not, even though it's a, you know, an alternative rock record, it's not all just about the guitar, which is also 
was refreshing to me, um, particularly at the time. So, yeah, I mean, overall, like revisiting it, I was kind of songs like Female Elvis, I was really surprised by. Um, mm-hmm. Just a straight up pop song, um, almost a 60s, 70s kind of power pop feel, kind of a fun lyric, interesting lyric. Uh, I was really taken back by that. That's not a song that I would have expected from this band when I, you know, based on my memory of them. And I think there's some legitimate, you know, um, hooks either in choruses or verse throughout a lot of this record. I think a song like Need, the chorus is great, um, even though the verse is a little bit like, uh, the The verses of that song um, sound like uh, the Rolling Stones covering David Essex's Rock On. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I had you too, but yeah, I can, I can hear that. But I love the chorus of that song. Like the, it's got a good chorus, yeah. Just the groove of it is really, really cool. And it's unexpected. Like you, you almost get lulled in the verses. You're like, yeah, it's just very, I mean, it's kind of interesting sounding, but you're like, yeah, it's kind of pedestrian. But when they get the chorus, it, it really takes a nice turn. And I agree. I think the last song is is really well done. Um, that opening keyboard is killer. It's kind of like this minor keyboard part, arpeggiated part, and it's played on this tone that's like really lo-fi, but it's like if an organ was played through a Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> and it just sounds really cool. Um, and then it takes a turn from there where you kind of get in the cello and acoustics and stuff, so... Again, just a lot of good, a lot of really cool textures on this record, and the production is um, something I enjoy quite as quite a bit as well. Going back to something you said about you know choruses and hooks, I feel like this is an instance where, in a lot of cases, the the choruses save the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, in it, we mentioned need those the verses are kind of fine, you know, just there. Two thousand one is another example did not care for the lyrics of the verses or even like the feel mm-hmm. of that. I felt like it was very pedestrian. Whereas mm-hmm. when you got to the chorus really saved the song and that happened a lot on this record. Um, yep. And I don't know if it's a, it's a case where when they started writing the songs, they started with the hook and and then built the song around it or not. But it yep. felt like uh, in a lot of cases, female Elvis is one of the few instances where the whole song works. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's it's just a well-written power pop song. And power pop songs are, the choruses and the verses are just as catchy, you know, or the, or the verse is just as catchy as a chorus in a good power pop song, good cheap trick song, good big star song. Mm-hmm. Um, that that song has it. Some of the other ones, this is the real world, the opening track, you know, good hook for a song, but... Man, the the rest of it just kind of sounded like very generic sort of '90s alternative like stuff that you know, like Big Head Todd and the Monsters and Toad the Wet Sprocket, that kind of stuff. Just like very 
mundane. And it's not until you get to the chorus and you get some melody and counter melody and harmony there that it actually starts to like liven up a little bit. But I had mm-hmm. a that was my I guess my complaint is just like how many of the times the choruses just saved the whole song. Mm-hmm. How about um Heart of Ecstasy? That's a really kind of bizarre song. Verses are like jazzy, almost like James Bond music. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the chorus. It's it's like a Bon Jovi chorus. You're like, whoa. Where, where did that come from? <clears throat> I mean, it, it works in a, for me at least, it works in a very peculiar way. But uh, I think to your point, it's if that song is just the verses, it's like kind of quirky but forgettable. But again, with the when you throw that chorus in it, it kind of takes on a whole new thing. That's exactly. And they do have like a cool electric piano in that song. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just like the two parts seemed very like kind of jammed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't really think about the Bon Jovi, but now that you say it, I can't, now I can't get it out of my head that it sounds like Bon Jovi <laughs> in the chorus. I mean, you hear the, I mean, I assume this is a New York band, right? New York, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hear that through the whole record and you heard it on the first record. There's like this, the the first record, especially like you hear Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen-ish vocal melodies and approach. And then it's mixed with like beat poet, spoken word stuff and like, you know, 60s kind of psychedelic-y, you know, art, art rock stuff and like you hear all those little bits and pieces that makes it, at least to me, I definitely can tell this. You know, this band's from from New York. Yeah, picture this has that psychedelic, like, you know, I think there's a Mellotron mm-hmm. in there. Oh, that's the one that's got the across the universe thing in it. Yeah, the which I love the chord progression in the song. I, you know, it's I, I and I. I just wish they would have done, wouldn't have taken it to that level. Like they didn't need to put that little trill thing in there. Right. It just puts my head right into across the universe, and I want to go listen to that. And I, I have a hard time staying with this tune. Right. And then it's funny is then you get to like the, the track nine, "Lift Me Up." It sounds like it could have been off like an early Primal Scream record. Yep. Yeah, it's I said this, the same thing. It's this total like you know Screamadelica jam. Hmm. <laughs> And that's kind of what I remember them being on the live on the first record. It was a mix of that and then just like kind of mellow keyboardy like jam parts, you know. <laughs> so when I heard this, it definitely had sharpened up. I mean, it's ten songs, uh, 
all in the you know under four minute range or around that right it's you know for the most part pretty sharp and concise so pleasantly surprised at least personally based on the first record when i when i heard this one right yeah this is a it's a tough record because there's nothing bad yeah but there are just some parts that are just sort of like i wish you had worked harder on this verse or Mm -hmm. that lyric bothers me yeah just feels underwritten there's some paint by number stuff for sure yeah i think uh it might be 2001 is real generic alternative sounding yeah just overall the song i think lift me up you know lyrically isn't spectacular you know there's some there's some average things here but then there's some moments where i feel like either through the presentation or through the songwriting it it elevates and is distinctive it's just i think inconsistent probably what do you think of any thoughts on space boy yeah i was just gonna bring that one up when i was hearing it i was completely like stuck also hearing smashing pumpkins space boy Mm. like i'm so familiar with that song off a siamese dream Mm -hmm. that i couldn't help but like compare the two in my head when i was listening to it yeah um because when you say when you sing space boy it's like it's even spaced the same way that Mm -hmm. that billy corgan sings space boy in his version and I, Mm. i assume that i'd have to go back and check i think what did siamese dream come out of like 94 yeah so I have to think that that was, they had to know that that song existed. Yeah. I mean, I like the music to the song and I think it's a solid song, but that just kind of, it kind of was in my ear the whole time when I was listening to it. Mm-hmm. So it made it a little bit, a little bit difficult. What about you? It's one of the songs where sometimes I really like it. And other times I'm like, meh, it, it felt like a, actually felt a Brit poppy to me. Mm-hmm. I can hear that. It's got, uh, Got a lot of strings on it, I think, too. It's very lush sounding. And in a way, I mean, there, there's a couple teams on here where they're straight up, I mean, they're ballads, you know, they're almost power ballady in a mm-hmm. way. And this is one of them. So, yep. In terms of the, I guess, overall structure of the record, it works well. You know, the first half, first five songs, they're all either up tempo or need is kind of like half tempo in the, or half times in the, in the, verses and then picks it up in the choruses it, it fit, i think it fits well within the flow but mm-hmm. the back half of the record slows down quite a bit yeah it kind of um i have u2 a lot um in a way you can, the formula is u2 ish and the way that they mm-hmm. reference different kinds of music and the and the you know the way they present it ultimately right what the, the one thing uh another thing that uh i i like about this band but uh i would say after, you know, reviewing it, listening to it, you know, several times in a row, by the time you get to the end of it, his voice gets a little irritating. I don't know. Did you find that? It's a little in the nasally and Yeah, he does that such, it's, he's got one delivery, you know, it's the, yeah, you know, it's in that throaty kind of, sounds like he's always pushing. Right. And it can, it creates a, a cool tone. You know, but uh, 10 songs in, when that's the only way the guy can sing, it gets a little little much. So I agree. Limit of the band. Yeah, I agree. You're not getting much range with him, and it's nice that they have some harmonies between him and the keyboard player, but he's not going to a lot of different places, no. and he can't. The, the, there's not enough variance 
in what he can do that, you know, it, the other way to get around that would be like change up cadences and vocal delivery in terms of how you deliver the lines. But he doesn't really do a whole lot of that. He'll get into like, there's a couple spots on this record and the first record where he'll do like a spoken, almost rapid mm-hmm. kind of delivery. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. He either does that or the singing, you know, the that style of singing. And that's pretty much it. Now, I guess if there's a good side to that, it would be uh, what you touched on, which was I think the band works really hard, you know, to compensate for that. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a good way, like try to make the most out of, you know, the melody that's there and using, you know, instrumentation and other vocal parts and keyboards and counter melodies and, you know, other means to elevate choruses and, you know, create dynamics and and all those sorts of things. So in a way, sometimes limitations like that can be a blessing because it makes you pay attention to a lot of other things you wouldn't normally pay attention to. If you had like, you know, Freddie Mercury on vocals, if everybody had that, had him singing, you would, you know, some bands would get pretty lazy. <laughs> You're like, all right. But in this case, I think it actually helps the the music be elevated sometimes. So this came out in 96. Yeah. Too late for the decade. When was Counting Crows? When did they break? I'm gonna say like '94. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it real quick. But I think if this was their first record, and if they you know flipped records, and this one came out in '94, things may have been different. But I think the record they put out in '94 didn't oh. have enough meat on it. The first kind of Girls record came out in '93, and that's the big one. That's got Mr. Jones and Round here and. <laughs> Rain King. Don't remind me. Uh, that's that's the big one. I mean, they put, were putting out... This came out uh, in September 93. So, you know, hits September 93. December is when Mr. Jones' the single is released. So basically, it's 94 by that point. So they're, mm. you know, they were putting out singles throughout 94. And then a single came out in 95. And then Recovering the Satellites was released in October 96. That had, you know, a long December. Huge. That's exactly how you, how it went. I was so on board with that record. What? The the first single was angels of the silences, which was a rocker. And I was like, Oh, counting crows are going to be a rock band now. And then it didn't sound like that. (laughs) <laughs> so i got duped. i got suckered yeah angel of the silences came out in september 20 uh september of 96 just before the album was released and then along december was of course released in december and that was a gigantic uh, single for like a billion weeks a billion decembers right so well what's what's odd is that uh i was gonna say that you know, this record probably didn't get much support from the record label, but the thing that's weird is that this one is available on Spotify and iTunes uh, yep. through Warner, but the first one is not. Like, hmm. I can't find that one anywhere. I, I have it on CD, but it's not on any of the streaming services. So, 
I don't quite know what that means. Like, why would the why would the record that Warner pushed? That's the case. I don't mean I don't. Maybe I just totally missed this, but felt like they promoted the first one, didn't promote this one, but yet the first one's not available anymore. Great question. Uh, no idea. Weird. Yeah. No idea. It's, it's odd doing this show. Like what <laughs> what records fall completely fall through the uh, the publishing cracks and just aren't available anymore. Right. Um, when we did the uh, soundtracks, the, the fact that the Beautiful Girl soundtrack is not available anymore is kind of blows my mind. And just to uh, uh, bring that full circle, I was out at a record store, which is not really a record store. It's one of those like records or I should say CDs, uh, video games, mm. DVDs, you know, one of those kind of places, just the any used, used yeah, entertainment yeah. stuff. And I was looking through the used CDs, picked up a few things. Most of the stuff was like either between $1.99 and $3.99 for the used CDs. They had the Beautiful Girl soundtrack. It was like $7.99. I was like, why would wow. this be expensive? And, I, and then I guess if you print. can't get it, they yeah. actually put a pre- premium on it. Well, they're probably, I bet they're using things like Discogs now and stuff, right? I mean, I'm oh, sure I guarantee. The pricing of that is all much more informed than it used to be. Yeah, you can't you can't just find stuff randomly now that, uh, you know, would be a gem. You'd be like, whoa, I can't believe this yeah. is here for a dollar. Right, because you, you could kind of make a small job, a business out of that, just going around record stores, like finding shit that's worth something on Discogs at these local video game shops have no idea about but well that's how i keep track of my music collection is i have it all on discogs so if i go in somewhere and i'm like do i have the second liz liz fair album Mm -hmm. i can't remember this it's it's here it's a dollar but i need to check my my discogs list to make sure i actually have it or not no i don't have i have the first one so i use that as like my reference for picking stuff up i i think i put all my stuff on there at one point yeah. Last year, last year when I didn't have a job and had all kinds of time to do things <laughs> like catalog CDs. There you go. <laughs> I'm grateful now, though. There I you. got the. Uh, I went through an all my my whole movie collection on DVD. I burnt, I ripped it all to my Apple TV and like tagged it all correctly and put cover art on all of it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's all beautiful now. Oh, there, yeah, absolutely. So, I advise everybody at least, you know, once every five years, become un- unemployed so you have time to clean up your <laughs> your media collection. <laughs> you have to, really. I mean, you have to. Just make it happen, man. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about our overall reviews for this record, Jay, since we've mm-hmm. gone so far off tangent. Mm-hmm. Uh, worthy album, better EP, decent single. Where do you lie? It's a worthy album. I enjoy, I enjoyed it. I had fun listening to it. I mean, some of it is pedestrian and, you know, for moments that are borderline average, but I found enough about it to be unique and just well done and um, a good headphone listen. So I give it a worthy album. Uh, I would go with an EP. Um, I, th- I think that they're all the songs have good choruses, but I only feel like four or five have verses that pair well with them that are that are strong as well so that's where i'm gonna lie I, you know stuff like serve yourself uh the aforementioned female elvis 
couple others. Those those would be those would be on my EP. So I'd drop a couple of uh, the other ones like 2001 and. How dare you? Yeah, I know. Sorry, sorry. As often happens, Jay, we don't agree on uh, the overall album, but it's not a stark contrast. It's not like you went single and I went album or vice versa. So those are rare. We haven't had one of those in a while, have we? No, I can't remember the last time. We need to make that happen. Yeah. Getting along too much, too well. Right. Cats and dogs living together. It's not, uh, it's not kosher. So last review of the year. That was it. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. We don't need the negative stuff. Just positive reinforcement is what we need. That's it. Jade, we'll be back next week with the final show for 2015. Our review for the year. We're going to pick our favorite interview, our favorite uh, roundtable, our favorite album review, and get some feedback from the folks out in the world what they thought about this season and we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up in 2016 there'll be a presidential election we'll give our thoughts on that uh there'll be captain america civil war we'll talk about that what else jay what else is happening in 2016 the an election i already said that <laughs> jesus i don't know man i'm looking at my tune record. out i'm looking at my record collection all Fantas- right. Fantastic Planet on CD. Yep. Discogs is saying is worth eighty dollars. It's true. It's impossible what? to. It's impossible to find that on CD. Yep. I thought it was just hard to get on vinyl. No. Wow. No, none of that stuff is in pre- is in is being printed anymore. So, and it didn't sell that much in the first place. So, if you're lucky, you can get it off of eBay for like forty or fifty bucks. All right, this one's getting sold. Uh, Collective Soul. Collective Soul is worth $35. No, that's not true. That's what it says. No, I picked the CD. That's what it says. No, that's not right. I picked it up for a dollar at Half Price Books. Stop breaking my heart. If that was true, I'd be I'd be selling it right now. I'd go I'd go to Half Price Books. <laughs> you know, it's small business buying and selling that CD. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Some of that stuff is not accurate. <laughs> it says max. The minimum is four dollars. The medium's well, ten dollars. Maybe somebody sold an autographed, unopened copy <laughs> for thirty-five dollars. I can't imagine why any. Uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, it was a big record. Is it out of print? I don't think so. Could be. There's one at every half-price books in the country, <laughs> at least. All right. And they're all priced at $25. <laughs> right. Or 35 or whatever. Sure. I have a, an original pressing of Billy Joel's The Stranger that's worth uh, anywhere between 75 cents and $25. Well, there you go. It's probably on the leaning on the 75 cents end, but it's pretty beat up. Yeah. All right. All right. For Jay, I am Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with the final episode of 2015. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.